Chapter One of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter One How Typhoon Came to Be Designed and Built. It would be hard to say just when the idea of the typhoon had its beginning. Possibly it was one night in October 1920 in the snug cabin of the Elsie, way down at the other end of Nova Scotia. Casey Baldwin and I, not to mention Johnny Walker, had sailed up the Broadour Lake after ducks and at nightfall had anchored in a little cove several miles from Baddock. It had been a year since Baldwin had trod the gay white way and six since Nereus, and I had plowed out the great Broadour passage bound for Newfoundland. There were many things to talk about. Casey and I did most of the talking, while Johnny, faithful fellow, just sort of stood by and furnished the inspiration. Finally, we got down to the inevitable subject of boats, and more particularly to cruising boats, for, after all, what sort of a boat can hold a candle to a cruiser for the great big gobs of enjoyment that it returns on the investment? Now, Baldwin has several boats, including the famous Scrapper known throughout eastern Canada for her consistent showing in many a race, She's a little R-boat, and when there's a regatta on at Halifax or Sydney, Casey sails her down the coast, races her, and sails her back again. Although the Scrapper is a raider, she's a comfortable boat for two people, even for coastwise cruising, but the Elsie, in whose cabin we were sitting, was more nearly his idea of what a cruising boat should be. Footnote. Elsie was designed by George Owen for Gilbert Grosvenor, the editor of the National Geographic magazine, and was built at the Bell Laboratories. She's really a modified P-boat, 56 feet overall, 36 feet 6 inches on the waterline, with a 12-foot beam and 6-foot draft. She is rigged as a knockabout yawl and has an auxiliary motor of 17 to 25 horsepower, driving a 28 by 28 inch propeller through a silent chain reduction gear with a ratio of 2 to 1. End footnote. When we got along to boats for shorthanded work, or even for single-handed sailing, Casey ventured the opinion that if, through any unkind freak of circumstance, he was ever doomed to sail alone from Baddock to Broadway, he'd rather it would be a boat like the Elsie than one of the so-called single-handers. He is all for a big boat, as big a one as possible without going beyond the strength of one man in the matter of the mainsail and the ground tackle, which are really the limiting factors. I'm not. I think a single-hander should be as small as possible without sacrificing full headroom, say 28 to 30 feet on deck. Many a good boat is smaller than that, especially in England, where they have made an art of tabloid cruisers, but I'd put 28 feet as about the limit. The righteous walk uprightly, as my friend Jim Pitkin would say, and you can't get full headroom in a properly designed boat under 28 feet. But single-handing it, while a most worthwhile experience, is, after all, not the most desirable way to cruise, and so we left this matter entirely unsettled and turned to the question of the most suitable type of boat for coastwise or even deep-sea cruising in general, a boat to accommodate, say, four persons. Many times before we had talked over the possibility of a cruise along the Labrador, or to Iceland, or even across the Atlantic, and so we kept at it until we had a pretty good idea of what a cruiser for this purpose should be. 
By this time, Johnny Walker was merely the empty shell of a departed spirit, and we decided to call it a day. In order to get to the subject of this story, we'll have to skip the harrowing account of how two sleepy mariners, each afraid of the ridicule of the other, went overboard for a swim on the following cold, rainy, late October morning, and how an accommodating duck made it possible for a bespectacled editor to rise several points in the estimation of a skeptical engineer. Suffice it to say that we spent the greater part of the following day in the drafting room of the laboratory, giving expression to our conclusions of the night before. Result? A 40-footer, fisherman-style, catch-rigged with an auxiliary motor. We tried a sort of bug-eye rig on the sketch we had made, with raking sticks and the typical leg-a-mutton mainsail and mizzen, but found that, even with excessive height to the masts, we could not get more than 450 square feet of sail on her, whereas such a boat ought to have about 750 to 800 feet. And that's about as far as we got, for the weather improved and was too fine to stay indoors when the remarkable glider HD4, the fastest thing afloat, was waiting impatiently for a crew. After returning to New York, I took up the cruiser question again with William Atkin. Time and again, Atkin and I had talked over such a boat, and we talked a lot more, but it was not until well after the first of the year that we decided that we'd done enough talking, and if we really believed in such a boat, she deserved to be built, and furthermore, to be given a fair tryout. We decided to do it. Atkin was the logical man to draw up the lines. He is a clever designer of small craft. He knows precedent, but is not bound by it. In fact, he's fairly bursting with sound original ideas, which make my own look as reactionary as those of a hard-boiled Republican senator. Furthermore, having built many boats, he knows a thing or two about construction. I knew Baldwin would like to build her in the Bully Boat Shop, which is part of Dr. Graham Bell's laboratory, and I knew all the men who worked there would welcome the change from a recent diet of lifeboats. And they are as skillful a crew as there is in Nova Scotia, the home of good boat builders. A wire confirmed my suspicions, and we went ahead. Our first idea was that Typhoon should be 40 feet on deck, which seemed a pretty big boat to me. Atkin got out the first set of lines, and we sent them post-haste to Baddock, and then waited to see what the effect would be. Baldwin went into telegraphic ecstasies over them at several cents a word, but suggested that we stretch her out to 45 feet by spacing equally between stations. The ease of planking the longer boat would offset the increase in material, he said, so that the cost would remain substantially the same. Reluctantly, we wired back to do it, and we were glad we did when it came to doping out the interior accommodations for four men. The next word from Baldwin indicated that he'd been figuring her displacement, for he suggested that in order to be on the safe side, we'd better add three inches to her already liberal freeboard, and if necessary, sink her that much deeper with ballast. He believed we were figuring a bit too closely, considering the endless amount of junk we'd have to load her down with for the long cruise. We acquiesced reluctantly to this also, which necessitated certain slight changes in the flare forward and the tumble home at the stern. The result is the lengthened design shown herewith. Now look at the lines and the body plan carefully. You will see that she is somewhere over 45 feet overall, 35 feet on the waterline by 12 feet beam, and slightly over 6 feet draft. You will see also 
that she is not really so much of a fisherman as you thought below the waterline. Note the slightly hollow waterlines and sections at the bow, which correspond somewhat to Harishoff's racing practice and to some of John Alden's auxiliary cruisers. A McManus fisherman would have fuller waterlines and fuller sections, and this is true also of William H. Hand's cruising schooners. Referring to the body plan, and particularly to the midship section, you will see that we have ample, though not excessive, beam. This feature, with the well-pronounced bilges, should give us plenty of stability. Atkin has kept the dead rise moderate, somewhat less, in fact, than is customary in the English cruiser designs and in the Gloucester fishing type. That fatness of the sections at the garboard, characteristic of the English designs, has been avoided, as we believe it detrimental to speed, although we have employed the reverse curve to the sections at this point, as it cuts down wetted surface considerably and gives a cleaner flow of water. The section at station E, you will observe, is practically a straight line, like the forward sections of a whaleboat. And from that point forward there is a slight hollow, giving an easy entrance, great reserve buoyancy, dryness in a choppy sea, and a very full deck line. Aft, the sections show less dead rise as they near the broad stern, giving a flatter run and easier buttock lines than those of a fishing schooner. Those big Gloucester schooners are practically double-enders, and while this feature is good in a boat of their size, a shorter boat, especially to make good speed under motor power, should, we believe, have a flatter run and easier buttock lines. Notice the deep forefoot, which still leaves a good angle of drag to the long, straight keel. I have been unable to see why it is that so many designers cut the forefoot away on a cruising boat where the ability to spin about on her keel is of little importance. Of course, an easy forefoot is necessary with the knockabout type of rig, where the stretched-out bow really takes the place of a bowsprit. Without it, the boat would gripe, and you'd never be able to keep her off the wind. But for a craft with a nose pole, it's different, and my experience with the old cutter type has given me a profound respect for plenty of forefoot. With it, your boat will not be thrown off when trying to get to windward in a bad sea, and she'll lie to in a moderate blow and let you go below and sleep without bothering with a sea anchor. Furthermore, she'll lie quietly to her mooring without wandering all over the lot. You may think Typhoon dreadfully heavy in the quarters with such a broad stern, but remember that those quarters give us long running lines when heeled down, the very thing that is so valuable on racing craft that the quarter beam length is penalized to keep the designers from carrying it to extremes. We lose slightly in this respect with our hollow lines forward, but we gain it aft. One reason why Baldwin was so taken with the design was that she is bound to be easily driven. He spoofed me a bit for holding out for a fisherman and then sending him the design of a raider. There's some truth in his accusation, but while I've always felt that fairly symmetrical ends were desirable for a seaboat, I have been strong for Tom Day's contention that a fast hull and a short rig make the best cruiser. Besides, I like a broad stern, and you'll find that the old man does too. And remember the spray, with a stern as broad as one of Bill Rogers' jokes. Don't let them tell you that a broad stern won't run before a sea. It will rise up and over the sea instead of splitting it, and while this very fact may cause the bow to root if too fine, 
I feel that the tremendous reserve buoyancy of the forward sections above the waterline will prevent this in our case. A noticeable thing about Typhoon is her shear, another thing that I am keen for. Doesn't she seem to fit the sea better than some of those flat-sheared ladies? Some will argue that a sea comes aboard most frequently amidships, and that freeboard is just as essential here as at the ends, but where headroom is not at stake, I'll take mine at the ends, and I'll have the bowsprit follow out the line of the shear. It not only looks better, but it helps to keep you out of the water when you're on the end of it muzzling the jib in a seaway. Notice that the low point of the freeboard is nearer amidship than is usually the case, allowing plenty of rise to the stern, where freeboard is just as desirable as at the bow, and notice the bully profile of the short seagoing ends. Before dismissing the subject of the typhoon's lines, I want to call attention to the fact that the fineness of the water lines and the forward sections is not so great as it first appears, due to the short overhang and the exceptionally deep forefoot. If the forefoot were to be cut away in the customary manner and the lines fared up, this apparent fineness would not be nearly so noticeable, and there would be just about as much boat left as in the orthodox design. Everyone knows the ancient arguments pro and con the various types of rig, the advantages and disadvantages of the schooner, yawl, sloop, and catch, and while many would prefer the schooner or yawl rig for a 45-foot auxiliary, we have chosen the catch. We feel that the various combinations of sail permitted by a catch and the shorter main boom make it more desirable for our purpose than either a yawl or a schooner, even at a slight loss of speed. This is largely theoretical, for our experience with the rig is not great, and we may be wrong. The total area of the three sails is about 950 square feet. There was a lot of discussion about the head sails. First, Atkin drew in a jib and forestay sail because the size of a single jib terrified us. We felt that it would give us greater sail combinations for bad weather and would allow us to tack our forestay down to the stem head. Then Casey took the floor in behalf of the single jib and reminded me that Elsie's jib gave us no trouble when we had sailed her shorthanded. Then I remembered the heartbreaking job of casting off and belaying two sets of headsail sheets in the old Nereus every time I came about, and while this could have been simplified by sheeting the forestay sail to a traveler, the impression was so vivid that I yielded without a struggle to the single jib. There is no question as to its greater efficiency, and with such a bowsprit as we have indicated, the added security of a forestay to the stemhead is of little consequence. Possibly the through-going motorboatman by this time may be a bit fed up with this lengthy discussion of typhoons, lines, and rig to the exclusion of her power plant. We ask his indulgence and wish to explain that typhoon makes no pretense of being a motorboat. She is an auxiliary, and an auxiliary of the only type that is worth bothering with. That is, a boat that can take care of herself on any point of sailing, except possibly in light airs, when her motor will be depended on to drive her. And may I be permitted to voice the opinion that a little sailboat dope administered in mild doses will do no harm to those of the motorboat fraternity who have arrived without the experience of the windjammer. Now let's look at the deck arrangement you will see that we have played for simplicity, with as few openings as possible. The cabin trunk, six feet in width, is rectangular, 
leaving broad decks on either side, and the sides of the trunk extend aft to form the combing for the bridge deck and cockpit, making an unbroken erection with nothing to stop green water in its passage along the waterways. I have always liked a bridge deck on a sea boat. It strengthens the boat by permitting continuous deck beams, it gives a lot of room above the motor space, and is even more useful as a seat or table than equivalent space in the cockpit would be. The self-bailing well is six feet square, and we have left it open without side seats so that we can get down in the lee of the combing out of the wind. The deck fore and aft of it will be used for seats, and because of the depth of the well, two little corner seats are indicated, which may be used either as seats or as footrests when seated on the afterdeck. They occupy the corners only so as not to interfere with anyone standing at the wheel. The mizzenmast is supported by a king plank extending from the bridge deck and flanked by natural crook knees to take the side thrust. It steps in a bronze socket in the cockpit floor, and the step is supported by a stanchion to the keel. To prevent water taken over the stern or running aft from coming back into the cockpit due to the lift of the shear at the stern, a combing has been placed across the deck, and in the angle formed by this and the side combings, the quarter bits are placed. Eventually, we shall want some sort of a hatch or skylight in the cabin trunk, but since we should have to keep it battened down in the cruise across the Atlantic, we have decided to leave the cabin top unbroken for the present, except for the companionway. We are using swing ports, the kind with the collar, in the forward and after ends of the trunk, and oval deadlights with brass frames in the sides. The glass for these, as well as for the deadlights in the hatch covers, is laminated, non-shatterable triplex. It is a half inch in thickness, and even if cracked by a flying block or the fluke of an anchor, it will remain watertight. We have spared no pains in the matter of the standing and running rigging. Harry Greening made up the galvanized plow steel wire for our shrouds and stays, especially for us in his wireworks at Hamilton, Ontario, and with this we are using bronze turnbuckles and bronze outside chain plates. The turnbuckles are of the type with the Tobin bronze screw in the middle, and were made by Merriman Brothers of Boston, the master hands when it comes to such fittings. Merriman also made our blocks. They are of lignum vitae and bronze, with bronze roller sheaves, and I'll stack them up with anything obtainable on either side of the Atlantic. For our running rigging, I went to the Columbian Rope Company. We already had some experience with the fine white bolt rope put out by this concern, and we are using it on the Typhoon for everything from signal halyards to sea anchor cable. Besides the running rigging, sheets, lazy jacks, and lifts, for which we are using sizes from 3 eighths to 5 eighths inches diameter, we are carrying 75 fathoms of 1 inch manila for towing, warping, etc., and for use with the drogue. All of it is three-strand in preference to four-strand. It handles better and I think lasts longer because the inside has a better chance to dry out. Our anchors are of the regular kedge type with the sliding stock, the big one 100 pounds in weight, and the regular service one 60 pounds. The chain for these was made for us by the American Chain Company. It is 3 eighths inch galvanized and the 75 fathoms we're using weigh 720 pounds. We are using some of this chain for the bobstay with a 7 8 inch bronze turnbuckle, 
as this stay is the keystone of the whole rig, especially on a boat without a forestay tacked down to the stem head. In her interior arrangement, Typhoon is more radical than in her lines, and for this I must plead guilty. I have never liked to see a boat cut up into six-and-a-half-foot compartments, and I decided long ago that mine, at least, wasn't going to be that way. Jack Hanna once said, and he hit the nail on the finger that time, that until a generation or so ago, the kitchen fireplace was the social center of 90% of the American homes. That's the idea behind Typhoon's interior. The galley is the important thing. Jack said also that everyone on the ship is going to crowd into the galley and offer suggestions anyhow, and you might as well make it accessible and comfortable, and that is just what we have done. The shipmate range, the second size, by the way, is right aft, where the motion is the least and within easy reach of the cockpit, and the table, sink, food lockers, and plate racks are arranged alongside. Except for the toilet room and a hanging locker, the rest of the cabin is open and in full view of the galley stove. Some super-sensitive people may feel that such an arrangement isn't refined. Possibly not, but I know from experience that Typhoon's interior will be comfortable, and that is the first consideration. American yachting is suffering from an overdose of refinement. There is a type of prosperous yachtsman who will go to elaborate lengths and fabulous expense to finish a room in his country home to look like a regular ship, and then turn around and disguise his yacht until it looks like the boudoir of the Sultan's favorite. Typhoon is a he-ship to take anything that comes, comfortably and without a whimper. Beyond that, we have not tried to go. Her finish will be plain. She'll look like a ship below decks, and she'll smell of tar and probably of cooking, with possibly just a suggestion of fuel oil and St. Pierre rum, and we won't have to apologize to a hobnailed fisherman or to Sir Thomas himself if he chooses to come aboard. If Typhoon had been beamier, we might have had built-in bunks on both sides, but as it was, we chose an unsymmetrical arrangement with two built-in berths to starboard and two swing-up pipe berths to port. This gives us more footroom and a couple of sizable seats besides. At the foot of the companionway to starboard, there is a large hanging locker for oilskins and boots, and you will notice several sets of hooks on the bulkheads for clothes which will be kept in place by a strap as indicated on the drawing. On the bulkhead forward, there will be bookshelves, a Chelsea luminous dial clock, and a barograph. Just aft of the toilet room, you will notice a dresser with large drawers for personal effects, and the space beneath the bunks and transoms will accommodate the canned goods. On the starboard side, between the seat and the hanging locker, there is a novel chart case to hold charts vertically, folded once. It's Baldwin's idea, but I'm as proud of it as if it were mine. The charts will be arranged in groups, each group in its own cardboard folder, easily accessible, and when one is wanted, it can be pulled out and spread on the table, the drop leaf of which folds down against the front of the cabinet when not in use. The plumbing consists of a knockabout closet, corner porcelain lavatory, porcelain sink, and pumps for both the galley and toilet room. A 200-gallon water tank will be built to fit the bilge space beneath the floor. Now a word about the motor. This was decided only after endless discussion. Had we used gasoline, there were several corking good engines available, 
but the idea of using fuel oil appealed very strongly because of the novelty and also because of the almost prohibitive cost of gasoline in some of the places we are likely to visit. These considerations finally decided us, and we chose a new heavy oil motor. This is a two-stroke high-compression machine, depending on the heat of compression for ignition. The fuel is injected through 15% of the stroke and burns at almost constant pressure as in a diesel. The motor is started by compressed air, and to take the place of what heat of compression would be radiated to the cold cylinder when starting, a piece of punk is inserted by means of a steel plug with a bayonet lock. It was the intention to use the smaller of the two-cylinder models, which is rated at 15 horsepower, but due to the difficulty of obtaining this size in time, we decided finally to take the single-cylinder 7.5 horsepower model. This, of course, is mighty small power for such a husky boat, but we figure that it should give us somewhere around 5 knots in light weather, and think of the cruising radius. The motor uses only slightly over a half pound of oil per horsepower per hour, and this means that we burn about a half gallon an hour. With the 170 gallons in our two permanent tanks alone, we could run for 340 hours, which, if we actually did five knots, would take us from Newfoundland to Queenstown. Of course, we shall have no occasion to run for more than a day or two at a time under power, but it is comforting to know that we actually could get somewhere with the motor alone, even if it did take a while. The motor is equipped with a Navy reverse gear, a McCord mechanical oiler, and a Collidor strainer. The inside stuffing box, stern bearing, and propeller are Columbian, the latter a two-blade 24-inch diameter by 18-inch pitch. Getting the tanks in time was a problem, but L.O. Coven and Brothers did a quick job for us and turned out the two main tanks and two smaller tanks for lubricating oil and kerosene in a week. The smaller ones are equipped with gauge glasses in the ends so that we can keep tabs on our kerosene and cylinder oil. Atkin suggested the Debevoise company's paint for the job, having had considerable experience with it in past years, and we are using it throughout. Yacht black for the top sides, white for the cabin trunk, buff for the decks, red anti-fouling for the bottom, and their special red lead for the construction in general. For the deck seams, for applying the canvas to the trunk, and for all watertight joints, we are using Nupro Marine Glue. Although the risk of fire is not great with crude oil fuel, we are carrying two pyrene guns. Without going into the endless details of Typhoon's construction, I must say that her white oak ribs are 3 inches by 3 inches, spaced a little over 13 inches center to center, with sawed ones on the stations and bent ones between, made up double, one part bent inside the other. The planking is of yellow pine 1 and 3 quarter inch thick, and the backbone is fine clear white oak. Note, this chapter was written in March 1920, while Typhoon was under construction although most of the features of her design have been justified in the light of actual experience, other things would be changed were we to build another boat for the same purpose. Of these we shall tell later on. End of chapter 1